Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Merry Christmas. Mm. So good to be with you. You staying healthy? If, if you're not healthy right now, just don't let us know. You know, we think you look good. <laughs> I guess there's the uh, common crud going around. Hey, uh, before we get into the message, which I'm so excited to get into today, um, a couple of housekeeping notes. This thing, uh, it could change somebody's life, this little ticket uh, to Christmas Eve. A lot of us want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with our friends, our neighbors, and so forth, but we just don't know how. I mean, we, we have visions of that in our mind, like, hello, I'm a Christian, and I want your soul in heaven. How do you feel? You know, I, we, we, we've practiced in our minds. How do we do this? This is like the easiest thing in the world. You just give it to your friend, your neighbor, and you're good. Adult to adult, they get to decide, are they coming or they're not coming. But a lot of people at Christmas time are feeling it. They're thinking, you know what? It, there's got to be something more than I just bought you 10 presents and you bought me 10 presents is, is there something bigger than this? So uh, you do it your way. For some of you, you might say, hey, um, really want to see you in church. That's your style, kind of the John Wayne style. Um, the Mary Poppins style is, hey, we got a lot of things going on. It's just like, it's going to be magical. Uh, and then there's a passive aggressive style, knock on the door slide it in, into the door jam, and then run away. <laughs> so you figure it out. I'm just playing with you. But it's, it's a wonderful chance for some of us. We have actually, as Christians, never shared the love of Jesus with anybody. And what a great way to begin Christmas time. And uh, this is a thing for you to just check out. By the way, if you're a visitor here, uh, just go on a commercial break for a moment. But... Um, you know, for those of us that make this our church home, uh, you know, we have conversations about doing the dishes, making your bed, uh, showing up for dinner time, those kinds of things, because this is our community. And this tells you the great things that God did in this community because you gave in 2019. Last night I said 1919. Um, and on the flip side, it tells you the things that we want to do in 2020, you know, that, that we're not done yet. And, and it all has to do with infrastructure here, discipling, raising you up, this community up, and reaching the local community for Jesus Christ. So pray about it and see what your part will be in that. And now, if you can turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We are calling this series The Hidden Stories of Christmas. And let me be clear about this. Uh, each one of these are not going to be like, oh my gosh, I never heard about the wise men. Oh my gosh, I never heard about Mary. It, it's not like that. It's more like, I never realized that. I've heard the Christmas story since I was a child. And I never realized that. 
the whole intent is to let Scripture hit us uh, with its intent rather than us reading into it what we want it to say. And I thought that James did a phenomenal job in unpacking John the Baptist, Zechariah, and Elizabeth last week. And yeah, you can give, give a clap for James. So today we're tackling Mary, this amazing woman, this controversial woman, this esteemed woman that for the last 2,000 years the church has had various ideas about this woman, Mary. And I'm going to challenge your construct. All of us agree that scripture is authority, but the, the biggest challenge I have as a presenter of scripture is you. Because we have mental constructs. We have files that are only this big. And we put these ideas into these files. And then every time we hear the story, it goes into that file again. And sometimes we don't let the bigness of the story come through. So we all love this story about Mary because it has all the ingredients of nostalgia. Doesn't it? I mean quaintness, coziness. I mean, you got a star, you got an angel, you got shepherds, you got eggnog. Uh, you know, you have uh, a manger that we, we've changed it from being a feeding trough to a manger, which feels cozy and fluffy with straw and, and, and all of this. And so it's got all the ingredients, especially mother and baby. So why wouldn't it grab our hearts? But we often dump it in the file called cozy nostalgia, and we fail sometimes to see the bigness of this story. The intent of Scripture was not to create a nostalgic, cozy story for you. That was not the intent, and I'll show you that as we go along. So the staggering story regarding Mary, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, even now in our midst. And we pray that you, through the Holy Spirit, would illuminate our minds and open up our hearts this Christmas to see what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, this staggering visit from the angel Gabriel to Mary. In the sixth month, I'm in verse 26 of chapter 1 of Luke, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Yosef, Joseph, a descendant of David. So da Joseph is a descendant of David, and you know that by the genealogy that we have in the Gospel of Matthew, which means both his mother and father uh, were descendants of David. What I'll not take the time to point out to you is that Mary is also a descendant of David, but she is also, and we don't know on whose side and so forth, but she's also a descendant of Aaron. So she has the priestly blood in her, from Moses and Aaron, but she also has the kingly blood in her, which is 
quite important, quite interesting. So where were we? Verse, and, and the, the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Don't you want to hear that? From the, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found fair favor with God. I don't know what it is about angels, but they often like to say, don't be afraid, after they just scared the living daylights out of you. <laughs> you know, no one was there before, and suddenly there's someone there in your room, and they say, don't be afraid. Why, why even bother with that language? Just let us freak out, pass out, and then we'll have a conversation. So this happens in the sixth month. Sixth month in relationship to what? If you go back and look at the whole chapter of chapter one of Luke, you find out it's making reference to Elizabeth, whom we studied last week, that this is in the sixth month of her pregnancy. God is already on the move, big time. John the Baptist has already been conceived. It's in the sixth month that now the timings for Gabriel to visit Mary. And it says, God sent Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth is like the most inconspicuous city you could ever choose. If you look on the map here, you'll see that it is just, this is uh, Dead Sea down here, Sea of Galilee up there. And you see it's about 60 miles from the coast. Uh, it's 20 miles from the Sea of Galilee. It's 100 miles uh, to Jerusalem down here. It's just this inconspicuous thing that's up there. And God chooses to send Gabriel, the angel, to Mary who's there. And I love that about God. I don't know what it is, but over and over, from David with Goliath or Abraham, uh, all the way through Scripture, God tends to choose the small things of the world, the the. Uh, foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And those of us that are looking uh, for the Ritz-Carlton baby to be born, you know, is oftentimes uh, a reason why we miss what God is doing. But God brings this child uh, and message of this child to Mary. I, the, the next slide, you can see what uh, Nazareth looks like um, today. Christmas tree in the little courtyard downtown. The, the downtown area kind of looks like a little Laguna Beach area with all these little shops and so forth. And, and this city sprawls up around the hills there. It's, it's really the largest Arab Christian population in Israel. And uh, I had a chance to spend a week there with a friend every day just walking down into this little courtyard and imagining what it was like for Gabriel to come to Mary there when it was much smaller as a little town. And this is the same angel that came to Elizabeth and rather Zechariah in the temple. Back in verse 19, his name is Gabriel. And get this, it's the same angel that came to Daniel 600, 600 years ago uh, 
when Daniel was in Babylon. Apparently, they live a long time. <laughs> the exact same name, Gabriel. Did you know? Isn't that fascinating? Uh, this is the angel that, that let Daniel know that he was wrestling with the prince of Persia, which tells us a little bit about principalities and powers that, that, of darkness that move around the world. And there, there's this wrestling that goes on in the heavenlies uh, for this battleground. You're the battleground. It's, it's fascinating to think about, but the, Gabriel... Uh, comes to Mary. So he's apparently an angel of some importance. He's not called an archangel. In the book of Enoch, which is outside of Scripture, he's called an archangel. But in Scripture, he's, he's just an angel. I don't think angels are into titles, by the way. Uh, they know who the great one is. We're the ones that, don't you know who I am? And uh, then the other thing is that there's something with angels being assigned to a responsibility. It's their project. It's their task. And so this task of Gabriel coming to Mary goes all the way back to what started in Babylon and Persia through this angel Gabriel. What's the point? This is big, folks. It's hard to call this quaint. This is big. God is on the move. And Mary is pledged to be married, it says here in the text, in verse 27. To be pledged to be married uh, is a big, big deal at this time. You know, today the lines are blurred in our culture, and we don't know what we don't know who's married, who's engaged, who's living together, who who just spent the night with each other, what kind of relationship, and it's just somehow in our culture all okay. It's just a big blur. But what's lacking oftentimes is a big word called commitments. Hello? If you blur the, blur the lines and responsibility and commitment are way, way, way low. In this culture, as it is, is in much of the cultures today still, commitment is a big deal. Your word is your word. It's a big, 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 big deal. And so they would pledge to be married and it included a ceremony, it included gifts, and the only way to get out of this betrothal, what we would think of similar to an engagement, was to get divorced. You had to legally see an attorney to get divorced out of an engagement. So this is no small deal. It's just simply we're going to be engaged for a year but not consummate physically, the relationship, until we're married. So that was the situation that Mary found herself in, and how old was she? Well, <laughs> I actually don't know. Nobody knows. But the speculation of her being a young teenager is in keeping with culture. Uh, it's, it was very common for a man maybe Joseph up to 30 years old. It sounds abusive to us now uh, to think this way, but he would be a man at least that has an occupation that can support 
his wife and has a relationship with the family and builds that relationship and then uh, asks to marry their daughter when she's of age. So was she 13, 14, 18? No idea. But probably a teenager pledged to Joseph for marriage. By the way, if you study the history of romance, it's largely a new idea on the face of the planet. Um, it, and you can still find traces of it throughout all cultures and histories, but largely marriage has been a legal arrangement that feels good and secure to the family. To this day, in India, my friends will introduce someone to me in Nepal as well as uh, this is so-and-so, and she got married uh, in a love marriage, and that's unique. The rest of it would be this is an arranged marriage that uh, was arranged by the parents. I was having this conversation with my PhD friends in Harvard, in Harvard Square, and they asked me how I met Jan, and I said we were... Uh, 18, 19, and fell in love. And how did you meet? Well, our parents knew each other, and they arranged for us to meet, and uh, we, we got married, and we uh, have fallen gradually in love. And I said, if you don't mind, that, that seems very strange to me, because you're banking all of your, your security on your parents' ability to choose for you a good spouse. And do, what do they look at? They look at socioeconomics, they look at demographics, they look at preferences, they look at beauty, they look at all these different things, and they're thinking, and I said, it just seems so strange. And they said, well, if you don't mind, Mr. American, uh, what you do seems very strange to us, that you, you put all of everything, all of your financial weight, all of your, your life on the fact that you are Twitterpated, to use Bambi's words. You have fallen in love, and you Americans seem to fall out of love, whereas we build this thing and we fall into love that lasts a lifetime. And I said, I backed off, and I said, okay, you win, you win. So this is the situation in this culture, and uh, Joseph, I'm not gonna go into because two weeks away. We're going into this mysterious man named Joseph. So she, the angel comes to her and identifies her as a virgin. I'll talk about that in a moment. And says to her, greetings, you are highly favored. Wow. You're the chosen one. Now, I need to tread lightly here because there's two things going on in this room right here. Some of us have religious backgrounds with the idea that Mary is this person that God has chosen because uh, she was sinless, she, she um, was conceived in a particular unique way, and, and a lot of those things are tradition that we've created and now have been, uh, become absorbed into uh, the church, at least that branch of the church. And I wanna say, uh, please stick with me for a moment. Um, even if I don't share your particular view on Mary, can you do that? Just everybody take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. 
uh, because we live in a cancel culture now. And if, and if anybody says anything that you don't or I don't agree with, that's it. They're cut off for my life forever. I'm leaving. Please, bear with me. I love Mary. I love the idea of Mary. I love, um, but you're going to hear from me that she is the consummate example of a believer who worshiped Jesus. So, one of the things we confuse here is the phrase out of this phrase, Hail Mary, full of grace. And it's pointed to this passage to be where that comes from. The problem with that idea is that Mary somehow is someone who is filled with grace, and so that we need to talk to her, we need to come to her, because she's that person that is filled with grace. That is a misinterpretation of the passage. What this passage's angel is saying is God is full of grace for you, Mary. You see the difference? Mary is starting this great tsunami of redemption that's coming to earth, but it's because of God who's full of grace, and he happens to choose this woman named Mary. And the word there is karateo, which is that word some of you have named your children, charis or charissa. Uh, it's, It's the word grace, and grace... Listen to the definition of grace, undeserved love and favor. So the point of the message is Mary did nothing to deserve. She did nothing to deserve this visitation. It was God's grace coming upon her. So let me just pause right here as we go on and say, how are we doing with your understanding of Mary? Because we're changing our understanding a little bit. It's important to get the staggering view of the Christmas story into our heads. So this is not a story of Cinderella. Mary is not Cinderella. She's been working for the wicked stepmother and the stepsisters, and she's working hard. And because she's working so hard, the prince shows up with the slipper and says, you're chosen. And, and actually, Cinderella has a, a fairy godmother that shows up too. And you can see how the Mary story can easily go into the file of the Cinderella story. Mary was amazing, and everybody knew that she was amazing. The fairy godmother, I mean the angel, knew she was amazing, and so God chose her, and, and I would just say, time out, only because that's a small Cinderella story. We're talking about a big, big, big redeem the whole world story. And God's grace came upon Mary. Second thought, the child's staggering identity. Look at verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, normal, and you are to give him the name Jesus, fairly normal, The name Jesus is the Greek word for Yahshua, Joshua, in the Hebrew, which means Yahweh is my salvation. Yahweh is salvation. So it's embedded in his name to bring salvation. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. 
the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So you will give birth to a son. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 that says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him God with us, Emmanuel. And he will be called, he will be great. So he's great like the angel called John the Baptist great, but we realize there's two things going on in the identity that this child has. One is, this child is the fulfillment of the Messiah, the throne of David. So the Jews have been longing for 1,000 years since King David was promised by God that his son, in quotes, that is, his offspring would reign forever. The Messiah is coming. Now, the Jews, even to this day, don't think of a Messiah as being divine. That would be very foreign. There's, there's only one God, it's God, and so whoever the Messiah is has to be just human. So they would be thinking of kind of a Martin Luther King Jr., some, some great uh, redeemer that's going to rally the troops and set them free at that time from the Romans. But there's another thing that's going on in the announcement here, and this has to do with the divine nature of this son. It says that his kingdom will reign forever. The house of Jacob will forever. His kingdom will never end. And it says that he will be the son, not just the son of David, but the son of the Most High. So you see, there's two ideas that the angel is bringing in. And these two ideas are the two things that we know about Jesus to this day. He's both human and divine. This is remarkable. It was prophesied that a human, a person would come and from the line of Adam, from the line of David, but you and I know, can any human save my soul? <laughs> can any human save me from the dilemma that I've worked myself into? And the answer would be no. It, it's, it's not just social, it's internal. And, and this is where the Son of God comes in, who is divine. So once again, this story becomes staggeringly large and we realize God is up to something big. Yes, it's a baby, and that's the quaintness of it. But this is, in the words of John Candy in one of his movies, running from a bear, shuts the door of the cabin, and can't talk because there's a big bear coming. And there's John Candy, who is big in and of himself. And he just says, big, 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 big. Big, 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 big. And he's trying to warn the people, and then suddenly the door smashes down on top of John Candy, and the bear comes in, okay? So you're all with me right now so far? This is a big, big story. So now the third ingredient, this staggering virgin birth. Verse 34, Mary gets it. She doesn't say to the angel, oh, 
how quaint, or oh, I love this story. It pulls on all the nostalgic quaint strings in my heart. She says exactly what we should be saying, how can this be? This is impossible. Are you kidding me? That's what our response to the Christmas story should be. By the way, we have a couple of fathers in America happened to be named Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. There were several others that were greatly influenced by the Enlightenment and decided that they were Christians by culture and Christians by morals, but could not believe in the supernatural miracles of the Bible. And so Thomas Jefferson deconstructed the New Testament to just be a moral ethical book. And that may offend you or, you, you, you know, play with your image of Thomas Jefferson. I'm not meaning to harm that. I'm just saying that I, I actually like that. If you're not going to believe in the miracles of the Bible, then be honest. Say they didn't happen. Can't be true. I don't like the story of Christmas because miracles don't happen. That's honest. But if they do happen, then be honest there and say, I need to surrender my heart and life to this great, 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 great story that happened. So she pushes back. The reason I bring this out is because the Enlightenment said, oh, those silly people back there, they believed in miracles, and we all know because we're so enlightened and have so much chronological snobbery 1,800 years later that we know that those kind of things, but those poor, innocent, naive people believed in miracles. They knew miracles were impossible then, just like you know they're impossible now, unless God does it, right? So Mary is enlightened. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, And this is the most detailed analysis we have of how the conception took place. And to go beyond this is Hollywood. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That's all we know. So just as the Holy Spirit brood over the face of the earth in Genesis chapter 1, and God says, let there be in the created power of the Holy Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit was upon Mary, and creation took place. But to create it, make it something beyond that, which I won't go into, that Hollywood has done, is uh, absurd. So she says, how will this be? And she reminds him of the detail Um, I am a virgin. Excuse me, Gabriel, but we have a problem here. (laughs) You're talking baby. I am a virgin. I have no intention of changing that. You notice any problem, Gabriel? Isaiah 7.14 said this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign 
So this is an important sign that started way back in Isaiah's day, 700 BC. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him God with us, Emmanuel. Some of you have come from backgrounds where the, the virgin birth has been diminished. Uh, a lot of uh, liberal, uh, theological liberal, not political liberal uh, thinkers decided to, to look back into this Hebrew word and say, you know, it's actually not the word virgin in, in Isaiah 7:14. It's the word for a woman who is unmarried without children. So if you look at it from the 21st century, you say, well, you can't, not necessarily a virgin. If you look at it from the 700 BC, it's like, hello. So when the, the Bible was translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, uh, 200 BC, they understood. These were all Jewish scholars. They understood, and they translated that Hebrew word into the word virgin. Just to be clear, this is what... God was prophesying through, and it's, it maintains itself through, through the New Testament. So there's no getting around it, even through the etymology of the word. It is the word virgin. Is it going to happen, or is it not going to happen? And this is remarkable. This is, this is the incredible largeness of this story. God is up to something so big. It's bigger than God blessing Sarah. It's bigger than God blessing Hannah with a child. It's bigger than God blessing Elizabeth and Zachariah with a child. This is a virgin birth. It's a big, big story that's not just quaint because it's a baby. And he is to be the holy one called the son of God. So, this is huge, folks. My goal, if you said, Mark, what's your goal for this morning as a communicator? My goal would be that the Christmas story would not fit in to your quaint file. Would be like... Not to do away with the nostalgia and the eggnog and the music and the colors and the light. That's how our house is. You came over to our house, you'd see, it's magical, it's wonderful. But what we're celebrating is not nostalgia, quaintness, and small. We're celebrating something that's huge. So how do I communicate huge to you? Here's one way. Look at the screen of this nice little pet. Now, who doesn't like kitties? Well, I didn't say cats. I know some of you don't like cats and some of you love cats. We won't go there, but a kitty, come on. So is this your story of Christmas? Ah, love the kitty. Or is the next slide your story of Christmas? And the next slide shows you your choice. That's your choice for Christmas. Now, don't do away with the kitty feelings. I love those kitty feelings. And by the way, I love eggnog. I have eggnog coffee all throughout December. <laughs> but eggnog coffee is not going to change the world. 
What is the story that's big enough to change the world? That's the question at hand. And this is a big, big story. It's bigger. This story is bigger than your pain. It's bigger than your failures. It's bigger than your sin. Do you believe that? Hello? Because sometimes the quaint little Cinderella's story is not big enough to change your world. It's not big enough to change your life. And this story is bigger than all the problems in America, and they are great. It's bigger than all the problems in the world, from Hong Kong to Iran to China, and the problems are huge. But this story is the story that is so big, it can change all of the world. So I'm having this conversation with a pastor last night. And I say to the pastor by name, you know, this story is so big. It's so big, God doesn't need you. And I just watched him squirm a little bit. (laughs) And then he said, well, yeah, but, and I said, no buts. Because it's, Do we believe that? You get on board or not, but it's big. God intended, starting 2,000 years ago, to start this momentum, this vibration of salvation that would ultimately change and save the world. And you're a part of that. But we didn't do it. And so in my discouraged moments... What's going to get me through my discouraged moments? I mean, anybody have brokenness or darkness in their life sometimes? What's going to get you through that? This is big, big story. And quite frankly, I I have this love-hate relationship with the news. It's like every day it's worse than the day before. I squint my eyes. And then I say, dear Jesus, I, I mean, I, I remember Vietnam protests. I remember three assassinations in the 60s. I remember, but this feels like, ah. And God, Iran, China, Syria, Lebanon, Hong Kong, God. And then I read the story, and I realize No, this is big. In the words of John Candy, big, 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 big. So I was stuck thinking about this and thinking, so what could I do to change your mind about Christmas? And I had this idea. I went to this place maybe eight years ago in Portugal called Nazare. And it wouldn't mean the world to 99% of you, but... uh, Surfers know this to be the largest wave in the world, potentially. And uh, what's so unique about this is it's so up close and personal. It's not like an outer bank thing that you can't see. It's just like if you were on the cliff of Swami's looking down, and instead of seeing an eight-foot wave, you're seeing a 70 to 100-foot wave coming at the bank. Now, also keep in mind, I would never surf that, Uh, I'm crazy, but not that crazy. Secondly, I'm not that good. 
And thirdly, I just want to live. So why would I? So this is a picture of Nazareth. So you can see I've stood on the roof of this lighthouse. And by inside the lighthouse, they have all these pictures of, of the wave coming. And, and this is probably a small uh, 70-foot wave that uh, a guy has been pulled in on a jet ski because the wave moved, moving too fast at, to, to surf this wave. And doesn't it look scary? Like, oh, this is huge. Now, does anyone think it looks quaint? <laughs> does anyone say, oh, I love the feeling, just the ocean, the redness of the, the lighthouse, it warms my heart. No, this is just, ah! And that's what the story is intended to do. God is on the move. That's the story of Christmas. So what do we do? What do we do? Do? No, we don't paddle in. Yeah, that, that seems logical, but that wasn't where I was going. <laughs> we respond like Mary. I am the Lord's servant. All he needs from you is, man, that's big. We don't have big, hairy, audacious goals like that at work. You know, that's a big one. So let, let me get this right. A virgin is going to conceive. He's going to grow up to be God-man, divine and human, and he's going to be the savior of the world, and he's going to save the entire world of their sins. What do you do? It's kind of hard to say, well, what's my part in this story? How can I help you with that one, God? Um, she just says, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. And the word there is dule, feminine for slave. Speak. You're the boss. Let's do this. I can't impregnate me. I can't. What can I do but just to say, I'm your servant. I am in. I'm going to obey. And that's what he wants from you as a Christian. Right? To just say, yeah. I'm in. So with this staggering tsunami of love, here's some pointers for you this Christmas. Number one, remember your story is a part of a great story, the tsunami story. You won't get lost. You won't get frustrated. You won't get just like, oh, is that ever going to change? Is that ever going to happen? I don't know. You know, we'd all do that, but we need to remind ourselves of the magnitude of this story. Secondly, be like Mary, obey. For some of us, he's asking us to do some very simple things. Have a friend over, love on him. For some of us, he's asking us to do some very difficult things. Forgive that person. Forgive yourself. Um, he's asking you maybe to reach out to an unlovely person. Obey. You're his servant. Thirdly, Believe, 
believe in God's goodness. This is all driven by God's goodness and his love. Fourth, surrender to his goodwill for your life. Pray. Pray daily for all the different unraveling things you see on planet Earth because God's tsunami is coming after everything. Take little steps. If you're a person that's just intimidated by the big steps of faith, take a little step. And if you're frustrated like I am with the lack of freedom in Hong Kong and Iran, and uh, wait. The set is still building. God isn't done yet. Ninth, love God and others the best way you know how. And finally, rest in his love. He's the wave maker. He's the big deal Christmas story maker, not you. And just rest in the bigness of who God is. Let's pray. Father, as we thank you for the Christmas story, we thank you that is staggering. And God, we want to be in the story. We want to be caught up in your story. So come to us, each one of us, in small and big ways with the power of redemption. And now, Lord, as we celebrate your full coming that went all the way to the cross and the resurrection in the taking of communion, we pray your spirit would come upon each one of us in these next few minutes as we ponder the grandeur of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.